0: where your to-dos are all over the place. On today's list, a
1: teeth cleaning at 6 a.m., returning the not-so-fake cowhide rug at 9, scooping up a vintage stereo from Marketplace in Bethesda at first to show up with Cash PM, and picking up Cousin Rick at Reagan at 3 a.m. Zip if odd errands at odd hours. With Zipcar, you can book cars near you in DC anytime you want, with gas included, which makes days like this well just another day. Join and drive in minutes at Zipcar.com.
0: Welcome to another episode, part one of two of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. So a quick announcement before we move on to the interview. I will be recording a live podcast episode on Thursday, June 27th at the Warden's House Museum in Stillwater, Minnesota at 7 p.m. The show will focus on the storied and historic Stillwater Prison, and part of the episode will include an interview with Gibson Stanton, historic site manager of the museum. The event is free, but reservations are required. Please call 651-439-5956 for more information. All right, on to the interview. I've got a really interesting one for you. My guest today is teacher and historian Gary Bruggeman. He is the author of Minnesota's Oldest Murder Mystery, The Case of Edward Phelan, St. Paul's Unsaintly Pioneer. We're going to get a chance to dive into some of the early history of the city of St. Paul, including a very famous murder, and I'm extremely excited. Thanks so much for joining me. So so I'd love to start first by asking you how this book went from an idea to reality. What motivated you to write a book about the Hayes murder?
1: Sure. Uh, first of all, to start off, I've long been involved in St. Paul and Minnesota history, and that goes back to the 70s. Uh, a long time ago, I was doing some teaching at Monroe School in St. Paul, and it was the neighborhood I grew up in, and I found that there's so many interesting historical stories around the neighborhood of West Seventh Street that I could find that the kids really got excited about history by dealing that. So, I that kind of got me involved in researching Minnesota history and so on. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got involved in. Uh, the community colleges, and I started teaching there, and I became a specialist in Minnesota and St. Paul history. And so um, going back to the 70s and 80s, I just read everything I could on St. Paul, but I was particularly uh, attracted to the founding of St. Paul, the pioneer period, uh, the pig's eye perant period, how St. Paul started. And so in my research, I obviously uncovered the story of the first murder in St. Paul, supposedly by Ed Phelan killing his partner John Hayes. And I was interested in it, but I was also frustrated because I had a little bit of information from the book, the old books that were available, but not enough, and there were gaps. Um, but anyway, how I stumbled on this is kind of an accident. Uh, after years of, you know, really just digging into St. Paul history as much as I could, I eventually came to the conclusion that you're never going to solve the murder mystery of of Phelan because the records apparently were lost. Uh, the trial was held in, in, in uh, Prairie du it and, and uh, apparently. I later will explain. that in the book, those records were lost. And then in the the first historian in St. Paul, J. Fletcher Williams, he admitted that he the records were lost. That he interviewed Henry Sibley, who was one of the first judges of the peace to look at the case, and Sibley couldn't find the records. So my conclusion was, oh, by 1980. You know, there's just a gap in the record. You're never going to find it out. We're talking about a murder that took place in 1839. So it's just going to be one of these long-lasting, unsolvable mysteries. I pretty much left it at that. And what happened in 1994, I was doing this massive project on the founders of Minnesota. Minnesota was created from what we call the Stillwater Convention, where 62 delegates met at Stillwater in August of 1848, and they laid plans for a new territory. And that's how Minnesota Territory was created. Now, we have the list of those 63 delegates, and I wanted to do little biographical profiles about every one of them. That was my goal. So I was really digging into that, in 1994. Now, interestingly enough, one of the delegates was at Phelan, which kind of surprised me. But I wasn't going to reset. I already knew as much as there was, I thought, on Phelan. So I was going on other candidates, other delegates that were maybe more important, wanted to find more information. Now, the president of the convention was one of the greatest founding fathers of Minnesota, Joseph R. Brown. And so I started digging into more details on Joseph R. Brown's life. And, of course, I found out that he left boxes of papers to the Minnesota Historical Society. So I went to the Historical Society. And, of course, I did all my research there. And I got into the boxes of Joseph R. Brown. Now, there's just so many folders and files in these boxes. I mean, you're just overwhelmed by them. And I just randomly looked through them to see what I'm up against. And I'm not exaggerating. I just happened to pick up one file. And in that file was an old book. And I started reading it. The handwriting was kind of strange. It was hard to read a little bit. And it was, took me a while to make sense. It was references to the deceased, references to the defendant's a lost calf, someone, and I, the more I read it, it, it was clearly a reference to some murder. There were witnesses. And then all of a sudden, it was just an exhilarating feeling. I I stopped. I go, oh my God, this, this can't be, this is the Phelan case they're talking about. I go, what? I go, Joseph R. Brown, what is he doing with a record of the Phelan case. And what I eventually found out is, contrary to J. Fletcher Williams, I hope you can follow me on this, J. Fletcher Williams was the first historian of St. Paul. He was a long-time secretary of the Historical Society. His classic book in 1876, The Book on St. Paul, The History of St. Paul, in that book, he covers the Phelan case, but he only says that the investigator of the murder case was Henry Sibley, the great pioneer of Minnesota, our first congressman, later our first state governor. He was our first justice of the peace, headquartered in Mendota. And according to J. Fletcher Williams, he took the case, and he was the one who arrested Phelan and sent him to Prairie du Sheen. Nowhere in J. Fletcher Williams' book did he say anything about Joseph R. Brown being involved in the case. So that's why I was a little puzzled. I thought, well, maybe somehow Brown got these this case from uh, from uh, Henry Sibley. Well, as I eventually dug in and figured out, I found out no. Joseph R. Brown, of course, I knew this was the second justice of the peace of Minnesota, and he was justice of the peace east of the Mississippi. Which would include the St. Paul area, and so I eventually figured out, no, Joseph R. Brown was also investigator of the case, and what I was reading was the was really a murder inquiry into the case, Joseph R. Brown's inquiry, not Henry Sibley's. And Joseph R. Brown had twelve witnesses that he interviewed, and he wrote it down in in this case book that I had. And it was absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, it it was like I found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, see, the thing is, if you're an old St. Paul historian, and like I said, I had been seriously, you know, researching, digging up St. Paul history since the 1970s, okay? By 1994, although I was still humble, because you never know everything. There's so many, it's not impossible. Possible to know all about St. Paul history. I had really been dedicated to extensively researching early St. Paul and I felt I knew most of it and I was absolutely shocked as late as 1994 that here I found this at this historical society and I never knew it existed and to me it was one of the most important documents I had ever seen and it was so fascinating now the only problem was it was hard to read it all. But that even though I wasn't at this door I to dig up on Phelan, I was there to read about Joseph R. Brown. But I'm sorry, this was such a great find. I just spent a lot of time writing about it. However, I didn't know what I was gonna do with the find. Um, I was teaching a full load at that time in the colleges. Um And I was kind of doing that profile a little bit for my students, you know, as you know, maybe I'd make a booklet out of it. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I just really, for my own interest and for the benefit of my students, I wanted to have a profile on every one of those delegates of the Stillwater Convention. That was my main mission. Now I'm kind of distracted by this great discovery of the lost records of the Phelan case. Well, what am I going to do with it? I, I, I'm excited about it, but I eventually put it down. And my initial idea was, I have to write an article for the Ramsey County History Magazine about this. And but then I just I got involved in so much stuff. I was so busy. I had four kids, and I never, you know, I kept procrastinating about it. Well, time finally went by and you know, after doing a lot of other history projects, I finally found a little time in the summer of 2007 to go back to this article. And what was really driving me was guilt. Guilt that here I was sitting on this discovery and I hadn't done anything about it. And I, I was there thinking, you know, hey, I could die. What happens if I die and, you know, <laughs> this is just going to stay in my notebook so I felt motivated that summer to get back and do this article and so I went back to the historical site I started digging it up and to make a long story short <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's as short as I can make it the more I got into this to try to write the article the more I realized there's no way you can confine this material to an article I mean this thing belongs to be a book. Now I never set out to write a book. If someone would have asked me, I probably didn't really want to. I had no arrangement with any publisher. I had no money grant. This was just something that developed. But I knew something was moving me. I, I just felt obligated that I gotta do this. It's my calling and part of it was also kind of a weird almost a spiritual phenomenon because i felt did i just accidentally happen to find this lost record because it was almost like i was destined to find it because of of my unique qualifications i i really had studied a lot of the early pioneers. So when I was reading that document and there was references to Perry's, there were references to Jarvis, certain names, I knew who they were. And so I could understand what I was reading, where if someone who wasn't familiar with St. Paul history came across that document, they might not appreciate it as much. So I was almost the perfect person to find that document, and I I said to myself, well, was, was this just an accident or some force of fate or the spirit of John Hayes, the dead soldier that supposedly and killed, moving me? I don't know. But through the process of this book, I couldn't help sometimes feeling that there was some weird force moving me. And that's why sometimes I tell people, I'm not sure I wrote this book. I mean after all, you know, like a work of fiction, that's yours. You own that. But when you're writing history, you know, it's kind of moving you. I mean, you're at you can only deal with what the material is there. And so when I wrote this, sometimes I would get to a point of saying, What am I doing? You know, is this am I really writing a book? And what kind of book? And Is it going to mean anything? And sometimes I thought, you know, people are going to think I'm crazy. I don't don't know what I have. But as it turned out, eventually, the more I got into it, the more I decided I can't quit. I've got to finish this, whatever it is. And as I went along, one of the things, you know, I kept wondering, is this going to be readable? Is this going to be, you know, am I doing it the right way? Because when I wrote this book, I probably broke a lot of rules of writing. Normally, you research all your material and then you start writing. And you already kind of have your conclusions and you weave it together. What I did, partly because I knew a lot of St. Paul history, but what I was doing, going through this long process, I was kind of writing without really knowing where I was going to end up. And so as it turned out, my view as I was writing this was I didn't know where I was going, just like the readers might not know. And so it actually, as, as, as the book progressed, that style really worked well. And so I'm um, deep in the book. I don't know whether Phelan did or not. I don't know where I'm going to end up. And I just keep... but. It forces me to go through the evidence, see it in a new light, and I, that's how the book ended up being written, and the way it was organized, the way it did. And eventually I got to a point where I said, hey, this is really working. I, I, you know, It's almost like if I thought from the beginning, this is how I'm going to structure it. But no, this just kind of happened. So then I started wondering, "Hey, wait a minute. I think this has sort of happened. Maybe some force was moving me. Anyway, that's sometimes what comes to my mind in all humility, how this book evolved. It's just that I was lucky enough to find this material. Uh The way I wrote it was the best I could, but it was like the material was so exciting, such great material that it's just, it kinda, it was in charge, not me. It wrote me, it's sorta it like it controlled me. I don't even know if I can explain it right. But it's kinda like it was a force of its own that was leading me. And, uh, anyway, the more I got through it, all of a sudden, as I really slowly went through each one, I would discover insights. And by the end, I was convinced that I solved the mystery, that I really could, you know, show with a preponderance of the evidence, you know, that Phelan really was the killer. And I lay it out for the readers, and they see all the evidence. I'm very transparent about it. And then I kind of walk them through things. And we together, the readers and myself, We look at the evidence, and we try to make sense of it, and we eventually come to a logical conclusion. And that's how the book kind of laid out.
0: Interesting. Well, before we get into the murder itself, I'd love it if you could paint a picture for us of very early St. Paul. St. Paul before it was St. Paul, during the, the era of the very first settlements in the area. What did it look like? What was the area called before it was St. Paul? How was it that a guy like Edward Phelan was able to make a claim on a piece of property that basically covered what is currently all of downtown St. Paul?
1: Sure. Uh, That's the whole thing. That's that's another thing that when I went into this project, I had the background knowledge. I knew St. Paul like the back of my hand. I knew the history. I knew the story of Fort Snelling. I knew American history. So I was uniquely qualified to tackle this subject. But exactly what you said, to put the context in it, you have to understand that where, you know, Minnesota was very far north we were really on the fringe of American society. Uh, east of the Mississippi River, where St. Paul is, that was became American territory after the American Revolution and the Treaty of Paris, 1783. Uh, so that's how far back we go. Then in 1787, the Northwest Ordinance was created, and Minnesota was the northwesternmost part of it, that made that region which included Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota, eastern Mississippi. It made it American territory. So that's how far back we go in time, whereas the land that is now St. Paul was American territory. However, it was wilderness. It was unsurveyed, unsettled. Now, in 1803, Napoleon sells Louisiana, the vast area west of Mississippi, to the United States and Thomas Jefferson. And so west of the Mississippi becomes Louisiana Territory. Now, after the United States was created, you know, eventually Ohio Valley settled and so on. But Minnesota is always in the northwestern fringe. Nothing is really happening. You have rush of settlers across the Appalachian, Kentucky's being settled, Indiana, Ohio, that's the pioneering area. But we're so far north, nothing is happening except the fur trade. We have fur traders. The French started the fur trade in the 1600s. The British take it over. And so you really don't have any town at all in the 1700s, 1800s in what is now Minnesota. It's just the fur trade. And you have two major tribes of Indians, the Dakota, who control the southern part of what is now Minnesota, and the Ojibwe's in the north. So this is a frontier land, a wilderness. Until Zebulon Pike in 185 after the Louisiana Purchase, he comes to Minnesota. One of his missions was to secure land for a future American fort. So at Pike Island, he buys 100,000 acres of land from the media, the mouth of the St of the Minnesota River to St Anthony Falls and that's basically the core of what is now the Twin Cities. And he bought that land for 60 gallons of liquor, $200 worth of trinkets, and a promise of more money to come. That eventually became uh, $200. So anyway, he buys the land from the Dakota, and that was the basis for building Fort Snelling. However, there was no follow-up on the Pike Treaty of eighteen five until... Years later, until after we fought the War of 1812, our second war with the British. So finally, at the end of the War of 1812, President Monroe and Secretary of War John C. Calhoun decide, we've got to do follow up on the Pike Treaty. More importantly, we've got to protect our northern frontier, which is, you know, we fought a war with Britain. We lost a lot of battles. So we've got to protect our northern frontier. So Calhoun decides, he dusts off the, the Treaty of Pike, and he said, we got this land, we've got to build our northwestern fort there. So to make a long story short, Calhoun orders troops to go to the place that Pike had bought in 1805 and build an American garrison there. And then he does this order in 1819, and an expedition led by Colonel Leavenworth comes. Eventually, Colonel Snelling takes over and builds the fort that still stands today as Fort Snelling. So that was the beginning. But Fort Snelling was built into the 1820s not to protect the settlers from the Indians. It was really to keep America safe from the British. Because the British were our enemy. Canada was not a sovereign nation. Canada was part of Britain, and we fought two wars with them. So they were the enemy up on our frontier, and so we were the first line of defense if the British attack or if we have a war with them. That was the key purpose. The other purpose was the Indians were loyal to the British. We wanted to stop that. We wanted them to start trading with us, not with the British. So we were going to keep, going to be real friendly with the Indians, regulate the fur trade, keep the British out, and that was the purpose of Fort Snelling. There wasn't supposed to be any settlers at Fort Snelling at that time. Now it won't, there will be no settlers there until the federal government buys the land between the Mississippi, St. Croix River. From the Dakota and Ojibwe in 1837, the 1837 treaties. Once they bought that land, that's that, this was uh, signed in September of 1837. The Dakotas sold their little piece of land between the Saint Croix and Mississippi, which includes all of Saint Paul, for about a million dollars. That meant that now, for the first time in Minnesota history, there's a, there's land where civilians can settle on it. And so that's where you really see the first rush of settlers into Minnesota, long after Fort Snelling was established, beginning in 1837. Now, the soldiers at Fort Snelling, those that were ready to retire, they had an early opportunity to lay claim to some of the best land. Because by the time the news reaches the rest of the country that the treaty was ratified, they got to come all the way up the Mississippi here. You know, that's a lot of time. But the soldiers were right there. So as soon as they hear the news that's brought up River by Steamboat, that the land was purchased from the Indians, some of them who uh, retire early will want to make a claim. Now, here's the story with Phelan. Phelan, in early June 1838, his three-year service was over. So most of the soldiers, when their service was over, they left. They were tired of frontier life. But Phelan had been talking with two other Irish soldiers at Fort Snelling, a William Evans and a John Hayes. And they were talking about the tremendous potential of the land across the river, this newly open land that now you could legally settle. See, the laws of the United States, and this was laid out in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. I don't mean to get too detailed, but it is relevant. And those laws were the United States was tired of fighting after the revolution. They didn't want any Indian wars. And the way Indian wars start is white people start intruding on their land. So ideally what the United States government wanted was the slow and orderly settling of the West by first having the government send surveys out. And, uh, no, I should say, first the government should buy the land from the Indians. Then they surveyed it. And then they sell the surveyed, mapped out land on auction in land auctions, and then people would then buy it, and then you, the Indians would already have sold the land, so it might be orderly. But then some settlers would jump the gun and go before the land was even sold. But anyway, there was a, there were laws that saying, and this goes back to George Washington, white people aren't allowed on Indian land. And you can even be fined for it. Uh, there's all these different provisions. You're not allowed to settle on Indian land until the land is purchased from the Indians and it's surveyed and all this sort of thing. So Minnesota was not in was all Indian land except for the little hundred thousand acres that that uh, Fort Snelling had, but that was military land. So basically. Before the 1837 treaty, white people really couldn't live in Minnesota. Now, fur traders were allowed. Some government-sponsored missionaries were allowed. But that was it. Uh, So as far as being a settler and building your cabin, that's not going to happen in Minnesota until 1837 because then that's the first time because of the 1837 treaty where a sizable amount of land in Minnesota, the land between the St. Croix-Mississippi Rivers, is open for settlement. So that that's the year 37. Now, Phelan gets released from the military in June. I think it's June 3rd, 1838. Now, I should explain that although the treaty was signed in September 37, it's got to be ratified by the Senate. Otherwise, it's not a legal binding treaty. Well, the Senate doesn't ratify it until months later. The news of the ratification doesn't hit Fort Snelling until July of 1838. So the, realistically, the settlement really starts happening in 38. And so in June of 38, uh, Phelan is talking with some of his fellow soldiers, William Evans, John Hayes, about maybe making land claims. Now, John Hayes was a sergeant, Phelan was a private, but Hayes had a problem. His tour of duty was going to last until 39, several months. He knew that if he wanted to get a good land claim, by 39, all the best land will probably be taken. So we don't have the details of what happened, but we do know that a partnership was made between Ed Phelan, the private, and Sergeant John Hayes. And the deal was, Phelan, because he gets out early in June of 1838, he would go and pick land for both of them. He'd pick one piece, a 160-acre tract for himself, and another piece for Hayes. He would also build a cabin so that they both could live in when Hayes gets out. Now, because Phelan is doing all this work while Hayes is still at the fort, Hayes is going to pay for the equipment, anything Phelan needs to build the cabin, and that's his contribution. But Phelan's going to he's going to be out early, so he's going to do the work. So that's how they made the partnership. Now, you know when you if you read about who Phelan was and who Hayes was, then you see they were kind of an odd couple, and I can kind of mention that. But I just want to finish up the context that you're talking about. So in 1838, what was St. Paul like? It was basically wilderness. The first settlement in what is now St. Paul land was on June 1st, an ex-fur trader whiskey seller by the name of Pierre Perrant, commonly called Pig's Eye, he makes a claim about four miles downriver from Fort Snelling at a place called Fountain Cave, very close to where Shepherd Road and Randolph would be. That was the fir- one of the first people to settle on St. Paul land. Now, also, there were some whiskey sellers, rum sellers, along what is now Mississippi Boulevard and Highland, and that was referred to as Rumtown. So, All this starts happening in late 37, early 38. For the first time, we've got settlers laying claim to what is now St. Paul. Supposedly, Pig's Eye was the first to claim land downriver from Fort Snelling. But the second was Ed Phelan. And he goes down beyond Fountain Cave to the site of what is now the XL Energy Center or the upper landing at the foot of Chestnut. And he claims all that land would would be the far western end of downtown, all the way up to probably roughly Smith Avenue, maybe. And that's going to be his land claim, but especially around Chestnut Street, the upper landing. And then for his his partner, John Hayes, he claims the area basically further downriver, Uh, further what we might say east, from, say, you know, uh, St. Peter all the way to the Robert Street Bridge. So basically downtown, the heart of downtown, was claimed by Ed Phelan working for a partnership with John Hayes. And that was done in early June of 1838. Now, when Phelan did it, it was a wilderness. We had a couple creeks running down. Uh, it, he, he had to develop a little canoe landing. I found from my records of the, of the murder inquiry of Joseph R. Brown that they actually referred to what we now call the upper landing as Phelan's Landing. So he had to clear it out. He was a true pioneer cutting the first trees in the, in the wilderness around the site of St. Paul Building a cabin. Now, when he built the cabin, according to some other accounts, he was assisted by an interesting pioneer. His name was James Thompson. He was a former slave. Uh, there were some slaves that were kept illegally at Fort Snelling because Fort Snelling, Minnesota, was really free territory, but not everybody followed the law. So James Thompson was a slave. He was uh, a Methodist missionary named Alfred Brunson. Bought his freedom, and so he worked with a Methodist missionary at Red Rock, which would be where Newport is. But he also, you know, hung around the Phelan area where Phelan was living, and he helped Phelan build his cabin. Uh, but Phelan, when he built the cabin, he lived alone, and the only nearest neighbor he had at that time in thirty-eight was upriver, Pig's Eye at Fountain Cave, and then way downriver at top of Dayton's bluff was William Evans, who was a bachelor, and he built a cabin there. So the earliest pioneers of 38 were Pig's Eye Perrant at Fountain Cave, Ed Phelan living alone, waiting for his partner, John Hayes, and Phelan's cabin was about right below where the XL Energy Center parking lot is, near what we would call probably near Exchange and Eagle Street and then further down way at Dayton's Bluff was William Evans. so that's the, that's what downtown was like it was wilderness It was slowly being cleared by Phelan and uh, that was the situation of 1838
0: everybody shush William Shatner has something to say
1: Cat and Jethro box of oddities what do you do when the woman you love dies and jethro box of oddities that is really mysterious join cat and jethro gilligan toth for the strange the bizarre the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside
0: the box of oddities the webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from airwave media so you, you mentioned up a place called Rumtown. Can you explain how an area of businesses like Rumtown existed without settlement?
1: No, they had Rumtown. Here's the here's the complicated story of St. Paul. Uh, if you were a fiction writer, you would just have a very simple story. A few people went and started a town, you know, like maybe Boston was started or Philadelphia. But St. Paul's kind of complicated. It actually started in two different places. Uh, Really, the first cabins that popped up after the 1837 treaty were the cabins right across the river from Fort Snelling, which would be along Mississippi Boulevard all the way to right below Fort Parkway. You know, the Hidden Falls there, basically from Hidden Falls all the way down to near where the Highway 5 bridge is.
0: Were those settlers from Camp Coldwater? Were, Were they Selkirkers?
1: Well, they were a mixture of people. Uh most of them probably weren't from Coldwater because the the bulk of Coldwater were uh the Red River refugees, Swiss uh, for the most part settlers that came from what is now Winnipeg. But uh this these were people in 1837 that were probably ex-fur traders. They might have had some connection to the Red River. But what the reason they opened up these cabins, these saloons, was because of the 1837 treaty. The 1837 made that land just right across from Fort Snelling. At least this was the thinking. Now it's open land. It's not military land. Now here's the, the reason why they were excited about that open land. There had been a number of laws passed, uh, beginning in 22, and then being strengthened in 1834, that prohibited the introduction and sale of liquor in Indian country. Now, there was smuggling going on, but the Indian agent at Fort Stoning, Lawrence Tolliver, was a dedicated proponent of keeping liquor out of the hands of the Indians. And he worked really hard, and he believed in that liquor prohibition, and he did. he had some success in it. Uh, so that technically... In 1834, you're not allowed to have any liquor. Now, it's so, at Fort Snelling, they did, but you're not supposed to sell it to the Indians. And even the soldiers were limited in how much liquor they could get. Well, in 1837, now, across, just right across Mississippi from Fort Snelling, the thinking was, that's the treaty land. It's no longer under the jurisdiction of the military the law pertaining to the prohibition of bringing liquor into Indian country doesn't apply because it's not Indian country anymore. The Indians sold the land. It's now going to be open for settlement. So you have a right to sell liquor. You have a right to open a saloon. So that's it makes perfect sense. So they open up saloons, and, of course, the soldiers are dying for a drink. And so they can conveniently cross the river and go drink at these saloons. One of them was called Donald McDonald's. And, of course, as time went on, the commanding officer, Joseph Plimpton, got irritated by the fact that right in the shadow of Fort Snelling, they're defying the liquor prohibition. They're selling liquor, selling it to the Indians, selling it to the soldiers. Soldiers are getting drunk. Discipline is breaking down. So you can understand why Major Joseph Plimpton, the commanding officer, does not like Rumtown, thinks it's a terrible outrage, and uh, the same with me, with uh, the Indian agent. Now, here's uh, the story: even though when Rumtown was built, those people thought that they were in they were part of open territory for settlement. The commanding officer at Fort Snelling felt, no, that is actually part of the reservation. But the problem was, they never mapped out the exact borders of Fort Snelling. Pike in his Treaty of 1805 was really vague about it. You know, he wasn't a lawyer or a surveyor, and so the language of the Pike Treaty is really confusing. He supposedly bought nine miles from the mouth of the St. Peter to St. Anthony Falls. And it was supposed to be both sides, but how far it went, he wasn't precise about it. So what Major Joseph Plimpton did in, in the fall of 1837 is he ordered a survey of the Fort Snelling area, first one ever done, and he also asked them, count up all how many settlers are on the reservation. And he counted over 100, most of them were at Coldwater, but he did identify Four cabins or four or five cabins in Rumtown, right across the river. And the reason I got the name Rumtown later on in another map in 1839, they actually wrote down the name Rumtown, and so we have references to Rumtown. But right from the beginning of the start of so-called Rumtown, they were getting in pro, they were getting in conflict with the commanding officer. And the Indian agent, they didn't like it. And so what eventually will happen is kind of cleverly on the part of the commander. He wanted to get rid of the whiskey chair. He wanted to get rid of the settlers. But also in addition to Rumtown, when Pig's Eye goes down to Fountain Cave, about four or five miles below Rumtown, and then he starts the saloon. And then you, then the other there's other Red River refugees that go there. Flempton decides that he's got to figure out a way to get rid of these settlers. They're too close to the fort. So he writes a letter to the Secretary of War, Joel Poinsett, and even writes a letter to President Martin Van Buren. And he starts complaining that he can't operate the fort. There's too many civilians here. They're selling whiskey to the Indians. They're selling whiskey to the soldiers. They're taking up all the land They're uh, it's a real problem, and so we ask permission. Can I draw up once and for all a reservation, a bigger reservation? And eventually, what both the president and the secretary of war say, go ahead. You draw up, show us, show us on a map how much land you think you need. So in 1839, Plimpton orders a drawing up of a reservation, and it's huge. It's five miles round. It goes all the way on the east side of the Mississippi about where Marshall Street would be. And it goes all the way down, and then it goes down river as far as almost Chestnut Street. All that big hunk of territory, Highland Park, a good part of the west end of St. Paul, was now going to be Fort Snelling Military Reservation. Now, <laughs> that was a shock to the Rumtown settlers. But it was a bigger shock to Pigseye Perrant because he was way downriver from Fort Snelling. He never thought in his wildest dreams that the military reservation would go that far south. Now, in addition to Pigseye Perrant, there was another family called the Perry family, Abraham Perry. They had a farm just a just a little, very close to where Fountain Cave was. And then some other uh, French Canadians who came from the Red River named Jarvis, they also had a, uh, a farm near Fountain Cave. So there, was like a, there were like two separate settlements by 1839. One was Rumtown right across the river from Fort Snelling, And then another settlement, a loose settlement, was around Fountain Cave. Now, at Fountain Cave, there was only one saloon, and that was Pig's Eye Perron. The other cabin dwellers were farmers. But at Rumtown, all of them sold rum. Uh, So you had two different settlements. But as far as Major Joseph Plimpton was concerned, they're all bad. He wants to get rid of all of them. And so because of his politicking, he gets permission to draw up this huge reservation line, And once that's approved by the president in 1839, now he can evict every one of the settlers. He can evict the Rumtowners, the Fountain Cave people, and this eventually happens. They get evicted. They get burned out of their homes. He burns down Rumtown, burns down the Fountain Cave, and they have to go further downriver. And this is where... St. Paul really begins because all of them, all the Rumtown and Fountain Cave, they have to go beyond Eagle Street. So that's when they, you know, kind of move into the downtown area. But Phelan was lucky because he was so far down river, most of his land was beyond the reservation. So he never got his cabin burned out. You know, all the Rumtown cabins got burned down the Perry, the Jarvis, they all got burned down, and they had to relocate. But Phelan never did. And, of course, William Evans was even farther. So that was the situation in uh, you know, 1839. And of course, it's kind of complicated, but it's very important to know that. Otherwise, it, the whole stories don't make sense.
0: Pig's Eye Perrant, one of the more colorful characters in Minnesota history, he he operated out of Fountain Cave, which was a cave on the Mississippi River. How would that have been burned out?
1: Yeah, no, I'm talking about he had a little shanty there. And uh, the cave, yeah, the cave was a mysterious, fascinating landmark. It was first really reported in 1817 by the explorer Stephen Long, Major Stephen Long a topographical engineer who came up river to kind of re-examine the pike site right before Fort Snelling was built and on his way he stumbled upon Fountain Cave and he was fascinated with it and he and his men lit torches they went all the way back and they got so far back their torches ran out and they got scared they couldn't get to the end he later went back to the cave again and still couldn't find the end of it Well, other explorers would visit the cave, and they never found the end of it either. And so supposedly it was this mysterious, long, long, winding cave. And, of course, one of the problems was, you know, it was a creek. There was a creek coming out of it. And in the opening, it was a wide opening. But as you got deeper and deeper in the cave, you had to walk in the water. So you had to wade through the cold stream, and that had to be kind of scary. So that's how you explored the cave. That's why no one found the end of it. Now, that was Fountain Cave, and Pig's Eye Parant settled there on June first, 1838, and he built a little shanty next to it. And the story was he used to hide his liquor back in the cave. Because, see, with Pig's Eye Parant, he was first reported in Minnesota around 1830, and he was always uh, selling whiskey. He was associated with Alex Bailey. I don't want to get too many names here, but Alex Bailey was the head of the American Fur Company in Minnesota. He was the predecessor of Henry Sibley, and he lost his license when he got caught smuggling liquor, bringing up a keel bolt with liquor, breaking the 1832-1834 liquor prohibition, got caught red-handed, and one of the men on the boat with Bailey was Pigs Eye Perrant. Perrant. was working for him. Uh, but anyway, Bailey loses his license, and that's why Henry Sibley came in to replace him as the regional head of the American Fur Company at Mendota. But that's where we can find some stuff about Perrant. He's working with Bailey. He's always connected with liquor smuggling, whatever. But there's a reference to the Indian Agents Journal, tolliver's journal that references that he got a report that pig's eye was illegal illegally trading with the indians without a license and selling them liquor and uh, tolliver said if he catches him he's going to send him to prison to Prairie sheen so perrant right before the treaty was living in the shadows he was supposed to be banished from the territory he didn't have a license he was not permitted to trade, yet he was supposedly selling liquor. If he got caught, he would be arrested, so he was kind of this illegal trader. Well, once the land opens up across the river, he feels safe to go down the Fountain Cave. He believed Tolliver and the military authorities can't touch him because he's not on Indian land. He's on the land that was purchased by the federal government from the Dakotas. So he's kind of hiding out. However, there's one account that says if the soldiers ever go down and try to catch him with liquor, he's still not supposed to sell it to the Indians. He can hide it in the cave and they'll never find it. Well, that's where Pigs Eye Perant is now. Obviously, of all the different settlers on the East Bank, Perant is one of the most notorious, and you know Major Plimpton Talbot would love to get rid of him. And so one of the things that happens as a result of Major Plimpton making this big reservation with one stroke he can get rid of Pig's Eye, he can get rid of Rumtown get them all out of there get them far away from the fort and Major Plimpton's going to be a lot happier. And there's another theory is that Plimpton was also getting interested in some land claims for himself so he wanted to get rid of the competition. But that's how Pig's Eye Parant ended up at Fountain Cave.
0: And he was a very distinctive looking character too, right?
1: Yeah, well unfortunately we have no picture or painting of him, but we do have a nice written description of him that was provided by J. Fletcher Williams. They said you know, it said that he had supposedly one other source said that he had gotten a knife fight when he was a voyager. And so he just had a little slit coming out of one eye, and the other eye was big, marble-hued. And some people believe that the big eye that popped out was why he was called pig's eye, but actually it was the cut eye where he just had a little slit coming out that looked like a pig's eye. Pig's eyes Pigs have very narrow eyes. So that's why he was called Eye, And he didn't like the name, but that was his popular name. He could not read or write English. I mean, he might speak a little English, but he, he was illiterate. The couple documents we have of him, he signs his name with an X. So he was a low-class ex-voyager, whiskey peddler, and, um, you know, I wish we had more information about him. I, I, in, in the book I'm writing now, I've done even more research. We actually know more about Pig's Eye Prant than we do most people of his class. Most of the fur traders the, that weren't educated, they don't leave records. They don't write memoirs. They don't write letters. They don't. They don't write. So how do we have much records of them? So. We're actually lucky that we do know what we do know about Prant, and the reason we do is he he definitely played a key role in the founding of St. Paul, and he's a colorful character, and uh, people wrote about him.
0: Do you think he was making the whiskey himself, or was he getting it shipped up?
1: Well, where they got the whiskey is they got it, usually the American fur would ship it up from St. Louis, uh, there are also some whiskey coming in by way of the north, by Lake Superior. Um, supposedly, Pig's Eye would doctor his whiskey. He'd take a keg, and before he sold it to the Indians, he'd fill it up with Mississippi River water, supposedly threw a little tobacco in there, so he could stretch it out more. Uh, and supposedly, that's what he was known for, doctoring his whiskey. Um, now, exactly... You know, uh, once you have the land open for settlement, the prohibition against liquor doesn't apply. So you can start bringing liquor up, and, matter of fact, one of the first steamboats that stops at what is, you know, what, the St. Paul area, it stopped to drop whiskey uh, whiskey off to Pig's Eye Ferrand. So, I mean, like, if you look where Fountain Cave is, Randolph and Shepherd Road, that's several miles away from Fort Snelling. I mean, Fort Snelling is not even going to know what's happening. But you could argue that it was totally legal to bring whiskey to like Ed Salen or Pierre Perant on the east side of the river because that's not Indian country. Now, it's illegal if you were on the other side and you brought liquor. That's breaking the law. But technically speaking, where St. Paul is located, As of the 1837 treaty, that is no longer Indian land, so the 1832-34, actually going back to 182, all those federal laws that prohibited, this is the word they use, introducing intoxicating beverages or ardent spirits, as they referred, or selling it, those were federal laws, and Fur traders fought them. There was a lot of, they weren't always enforced, but they were laws. They don't apply after 18, you know, after the treaty was ratified. And so when St. Paul began in 38, um, the argument of the pioneers there was those liquor laws don't apply to us. And that was Pierre Pigsy Perron's thinking. But then, like I said, Tolliver, I mean, I should say Major Plimpton, the commander of Fort Snelling, was very clever. He expanded the boundaries of Fort Snelling all downriver beyond Fountain Cave. So now Big Thigh si is no longer on open territory. He's on military land. <laughs> and so obviously the settlers were not happy about that. It's like, you know, you build a cabin, like say the, the Jarvises are down by Randolph and Shepherd Road, and they carve out, you know, a cabin, they build a farm, they're there as of July 38. And then all of a sudden, in late 39, they find out that the government has, has taken over their land, and now that's military land. You know, and they've been there, what are you talking about? And so uh, they they, they do try to resist. They don't want to move right away. They ignore their eviction notices. But eventually, a group of soldiers armed uh, goes to every one of the cabins, forces them out at gunpoint, and then burns down their cabin. And they tell them, sorry, this is now military land. You can't live here. And that's why St. Paul is located where it is. If you look at the location of downtown St. Paul, You know, some people might just suspect, oh, that was the best place on the river. That's why they settled. That was not their first choice. The first choice of the people who settled on the East Bank was the Rumtown area. That was choice number one. Fountain Cave was choice number two. And that's where they would have stayed if Plimpton would have left him alone. But he didn't. He changed things through politics. He got that land at Fountain Cave in Rumtown, he got it turned into the military reservation of Fort Snelling, and then he burned out. He basically aborted the original settlements, rubbed them out, and they had no choice, those settlers, but to go downriver beyond the reservation line and rebuild their settlement. And where they rebuilt it is the bluff of what is Kellogg Boulevard, where St. Paul began. And the year they were burned out was May of 1840. The very next year, Father Gaultier from Mendota builds the Chapel of St. Paul, and they call their village St. Paul. Originally, they were referring to it as Pig's Eye. And by the way, when Pig's Eye Perrant lost his land at Fountain Cave, he went downriver river to the foot of robert street and opened another saloon then he eventually sold that land to ben jarvis for ten dollars and he eventually went to pig's eye lake that's where pig's eye lake got its name so pig's eye perron got a total of ten dollars for the land that he claimed
0: On the next episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, I continue my interview with Gary Bruggeman, and he gets into the details of the relationship between Edward Phelan and John Hayes and the mysterious circumstances surrounding Hayes' murder. We'll see you soon.